the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 14. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking to George Mokhtar from Turner and Townsend about modern project management. So firstly, George, for those that are not aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, so I've uh, got my background in architecture, um, studied up here in the North East of England, uh, joined a company called BIM Academy 2011. So I used to be a lecturer at the university, work on R&D and then started moving into consultancy, uh, joined TNT 2013. Uh, my current role is uh, head of BIM at Turner and Townsend, um, and I'm also director of a, a, a cost center called Digital Asset Advisory. So I, I guess my uh, my focus is basically looking at the digitalization and disruption of the asset lifecycle. So we try and tend to focus on sustainability, productivity, commercial gains, and trying to get people to collaborate on projects. A very exciting role. It means you get to play around with things and disrupt things. I like that idea of things. <laughs> but um, Yeah, pretty cool. A- another important thing, I guess, is that, you know, in terms of understanding, um, you know, that's, that's obviously, first of all, your experience and an architectural background. For those that aren't aware of your company, Turner & Townsend, can you share with us a little bit about who Turner & Townsend is and the services that you uh, provide? Yeah, sure. Um, so the company was uh, actually um, born out of the northeast of England. So started off as a cost management company with back in sort of 1945. So it's been here for a long time. Uh, we've got about 100 offices, uh, about 6,000 people or more than 6,000 people now. It's grown pretty fast as a company, so it's quite successful. Um, I guess just to give you some insight into what we do, so we work in infrastructure, natural resources and real estate. So we've got quite a broad uh, view of the world. Uh, you know, in terms of what we do, uh, I, I guess our business model is focused around supporting clients and changing uh, and minimizing risk profiles. Yep. Um, so we do a lot of sort of setting up major programs, running projects. We do cost management, project management. And several years ago, we set up a business called Advisory, which focuses on you know asset management, legal uh, side of contracting and uh, construction, uh, health and safety. And the part of the business that I work for is uh, all around technology and data. And so we tend to focus on BIM, information management, data and analytics, and then we've got quite a large team that looks at things like information security and uh, and the actual physical assets, so working out how people can design um, projects with better IT infrastructure and ultimately have something that works when the client receives the, uh, when the, client receives the asset. That's a pretty diverse um, business, starting off with cost planning. But I guess today we're talking about the idea and the concepts of uh, modern project management. Now I can talk about my experiences here in Australia and project managers at generally, I guess, and that's why I say generally on a on, in purpose, so I don't want to be stereotyping people. But from my experience, project managers are not BIM enabled and most of them are very much not BIM aware. So as an organisation where, where your key service is project management and obviously your role is, is about the side of the digital side of it, what do you think there are, there are the benefits or advantages um, to your organisation in terms of embracing those BIM processes? Yeah, so I mean, I think I think the first thing to look at is 
um, how, how does BIM and how does clarity around process actually support uh, our core functions? So, you know, in terms of project management, I, th I think the key thing, first of all, is to make sure that, you know, we have visibility of progress, um, understand what the quality of the design is, um, understand what the risk profile looks like, you know, where, where is the risk in the project, the design team focusing on the right things. The big differentiator for us, of course, is that, you know, with BIM and, and, and good information management, we've actually got an opportunity to, to understand this using objective data. So rather than just subjectively talking to people, we can we can apply our professional uh, opinion on top of actual data that comes from things like models, things like CDEs. So, you know, in a nutshell, it's about getting the, the, the teams to collaborate better, uh, having that all set out from the start. I think that's great for a project manager to have, to have a handle on. It's something we could do in the, in the past, um, but, I think now there's a, there's a, you know, having an actual platform for collaboration, I think it just, just helps us really get at that next step. Um, you know, as far as a, the project delivery goes, um, having a full audit trail of, uh, of, of what the design teams are doing, what the contractors are doing, it, it both helps protect the client uh, and the supply chain. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, actually just having workflows that we can, they can manage and change, helps us continuously improve. So if we deliver a project under a certain process and we actually have that laid out in a, in a digital way, uh, it enables us to kind of keep working on that process uh, and make sure that we can, you know, come in quite firmly on the next project and say, look, this is where we know it's worked in the past. Uh, and, and that enables us to do what project, project managers do best, really, which is to try and get the right culture uh, embedded in, in a project. So making sure people understand the importance of data and, you know, I guess the big thing for me for a project manager is trying to move the team away from what I'd call a delivery-based output where everyone's quite focused on just delivering outputs and trying to move the team towards a culture where they understand that other people need to tap in and benefit from their data. So making sure people understand how important it is to have good quality information shared at the right time. Uh, and, and BIM enables us to basically back that process up and to control the manager. So essentially, it's it's actually kind of raising awareness of uh, the needs of others and, and and the purpose of that making making life easier for everyone. Because I know that you know there's there's great tales of of uh, certain service contractors going into uh, uh, major buildings and basically being the first one there so they can put their services wherever they want, and uh, and then the other poor guys that are installing the other services come in and. And have to work around the mess that they've created because they actually haven't communicated or worked together. So that's kind of a key thing, and I guess that makes a, a good standpoint for you know people that are in project management to actually start to embrace this to get a better understanding of these processes, so that they can essentially assist clients getting better value uh, throughout the whole process. On the same vein of that, are you finding that your clients are coming to you with these? priorities in terms of wanting um, BIM or is it that that's a value-add that you bring forward as your organisation um, to the clients to say, you know what, we're, we're, um, we're, we're a project manager, we're a BIM-capable project, project manager and these are the additional benefits that we bring to the table because of that or is it, or is it the client's more savvy or is it something that you're leading? I think um, just to go back to that, that last statement, you know, we, you know, in terms of people coming in on site, first in, best dressed is what we call it. Yes. I mean, the feedback on that is that uh, people can only process so much information, and we only have a certain memory, and uh, you know, the, the lifespan of what's important to us is quite short. Um, if you can start, um, you know, tracking and communicating 
how people operate and how people organize themselves and manage and deliver things uh, digitally, it, it enables us to take a step back and have a much broader view on, on what works and what doesn't, rather than just fighting the nearest crocodile and dealing with issues month on month. It might be that we have the data long term to take a more strategic view on the overall value of, of something to a project. So yeah, so it might be uh, cost effective, you know, within a month for a trade to get in there and do something, but actually what's the long term advantage and, and how can we learn from the data that we, that we track from project to the past? Uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the debate around push and pull, um, I, I, I think that, you know, as a, as a business, uh, we've come a long way since 2013, that, which is, you know, it's, it's not when the journey started, but it's, it's when the business started really seriously investing in. Um, people who had this uh, specialism. Um, you know, I, I work a lot in the UK, uh, not just the UK, but the, the work that we do here, um, the, the BIM strategy and the construction strategy that's been rolled out by the government has had a huge impact. So we're seeing clients uh, demanding uh, BIM, um, not necessarily always really understanding what they're asking for, but uh, I guess our job is to try and act as that buffer to make sure that they know what they're asking for and that it's going to have some positive impact on, our, on their business and, and marry up with the way that their business model works. You know, I think, I think it's important for us as well as all other consultants and suppliers and business leaders uh, to, you know, proactively engage and not wait for clients to just ask for these things, but say, you know, say to the team, uh, how do we do things better? Uh, what processes can we put in place to make sure that we're getting some real value out of uh, out of BIM and out of project management and all these other things which which make up a program or a project. I, I, I definitely see this as a as, as a huge change in the way people are thinking. So, so the question for me is, how do we move away from an industry that says why should we do BIM and why should we do this and that to to an industry that's got more of a growth mindset and starts asking the question of why shouldn't we and how can we learn from the other people that we're delivering projects uh, that we're delivering projects with. I mean, yeah. some of the things that the clients ask for regularly is just more accessibility of information. Um, some of the big global trends that we see, you know, generically that people are asking for is improved productivity. There's, there's the different pockets of excellence all over the world and in different industries around that. And I think one of the things that I certainly spend a lot of time doing is trying to understand and learn from, you know, all these different sectors as to what works and what doesn't and how they can have a positive impact um, with clients. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that's generally what they, uh, what the expectation is. The big move that I'm seeing more recently uh, is, you know, how, how do we use the process and power of technology to try and move a client's questions away from what happened, which is essentially what you have historically. You have a client saying, well, what happened over the last month and how far did the team get to? We want to really try and move them away from expecting to be able to ask what happened to be able to ask what is happening. And I think that's a big change. Uh, and I think as the as, as businesses get more mature, uh, ultimately we should be able to ask the question, you know, what will happen and what should we do about it next? Yeah, uh, so in, it's in a more sense, proactive instead of reactive, which is when it's reactive, it's too late. Yeah, exactly right. So there's, there's no good delivering a project and telling somebody that you're, that you're, that you're either behind or you're, you're on time or whatever, uh, month on month without having the, the insight to be able to do something about it. Uh, clients are really focused on trying to understand how we can control risk. You know, how do we reduce perceived risk? Because that's a big issue in industry at the minute. You know, how, how do we engage with information at the right time to make sure that everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to work together? Uh, and then, you know, how, how do you actually know what the real progress, effort and quality is on a project? 
rather than sort of subjective reports from different people? How can we start using data, not just to underpin those decisions, but to actually communicate what what is happening on the project and, and, and give us some insight into how to control and, and, and how to manage that? I mean, particularly on sort of major programs, some of the larger programs that we're, we're seeing delivered in, across the world at the minute, not just by us, but by anyone, you know, they're becoming big, uh, complex investments the clients are making. Uh, the, the worst thing that you could possibly have is a, a scenario where someone's um, raising several projects and you, you see the same issues or the same mistakes happen project on project. And I think the clients are expecting more from their suppliers and from the teams that they work with. And they really want to start to see us um, feeding these lessons learned changes and, and, and slight improvements back into the system so that you know they can ultimately see some sort of control uh, some sort of forecast that makes sense that helps them in the decision making and you know ultimately get a better outcome really because that's all everybody's after you know sometimes when it comes to uh, developments and and the feasibility of projects proceeding uh, it could be something that could be a hard question to answer off the cuff but are you finding that because of all this data that you're able to essentially embrace or get your hands on, it's actually making feasibility studies or, or setting up profiles that are actually have lower risk levels? So it means that projects that may in the past may not have gotten up because the, the, the data that was used was a bit too approximate. Um, you know, now Now is the data actually in a position where it's actually of a higher standard so therefore um, makes projects more feasible. So I think there's, again, there's two sides to this. One of them is understanding um, how to manage and maintain knowledge. Um, I think there's a lot of businesses that have a lot of data uh, and a a lot of uh, information and the the knowledge of how to apply that and and what that really means and how that can be applied on the next project um, quite often sits within the heads of uh, the people that work there. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but when you're trying to manage a large business, it's important to try and retain as much of that as possible. Um, so, I, you know, from a personal perspective, I see knowledge management um, as one of the biggest assets any business can have when they're working in an industry like ours, where there's, uh, you know, continuous change and expectation of, uh, of improvement, if that answers the question. Um, I think uh, I think in terms of benchmarking, one of the big things that we've done recently is uh, over the last few years, invested quite a significant amount of, of effort and resources into uh, developing a new arm of the business, which is the digital arm. So yeah. this is an inward-looking part of our company. Who, now, and I'm not saying it's just us doing this. But all, all sorts of businesses will be doing this, but essentially develop some applications, some some app-based uh, tools uh, on a on a cloud system, which captures all of this information. So. Uh, we, we've, we started off by doing this with uh, with cost management and benchmarking. So we're we're, we're actively taking uh, where we have agreed um, uh, agreed contracts in place to do so, taking anonymized data and uh, pulling it into a into a system that allows uh, whether it's a specialist in a certain subject area or a, an assistant cost manager sitting outside in, a, in, in an office that doesn't. Uh, necessarily have time to engage with other regions. Um, how, how do they access that information, learn from uh, any enhancements from the past and then get access to real uh, quality data? So we've spent quite a lot of time working on that uh, and, and that's re- that, that is really enabling us now that we've fed the system with quite a lot of information to start getting a much more uh, precise view on um, how projects might pan out, uh, what the impact is of different sort of procurement routes, different methods of procurement and different teams. Uh, and that twinned with the BIM process and 
you know, the, the, the process of actually managing and analyzing models and performance as things progress has given us some real insights into how you can positively impact these projects from the get-go and, and make sure that we've got things set up right and, and, and actually ultimately understand how different suppliers work together better in different parts of the world and different parts of the country. So it's almost like you're using data and machine learning to kind of reduce risk and give you a bit more certainty in the in the kind of you know professional judgments that people make in terms of decisions or recommendations they make through through using technology and and data. I say at the moment where we are is uh, we're building some serious foundations to start applying things like machine learning. Um, what we're actually doing at the moment is some quite um, quite big. Uh, analytics on data, uh, which is is essentially allowing us to communicate and predict how projects might pan out, what the overall cost might be, what the different variables on projects are and and how they might impact the project. So it's given us a lot of insight. It's given us a lot of knowledge about, you know, how different changes and different teams uh, might impact the project's performance. And I'd say, you know, in terms of things like machine learning and some sort of, uh, you know, supervised learning, um, things like that, I think that's definitely the future of where we're going. Um, and I think that's definitely the future of where a lot of businesses in construction are going right now is getting themselves prepped um, to, to basically future-proof um, the, their information so that when that information becomes available and when those types of systems become more and more accessible, we can really deploy them with some, some practical impact. I, I, I'm always one for uh, being mindful of some of the buzzwords around AI that are being uh, banded around in the, in the industry at the moment. So I'm, I'm, I'm always quite careful to talk about how we're managing that. So I'd say we're setting up for success at the moment, which I think is where most of our uh, more successful peers are at the minute too. Um, on, yeah. a, on a previous episode, I spoke to Chris Linning, who was a facility manager at the Sydney Opera House here in Australia. And he had an interesting approach with the way in which they implemented their facility management system as part of the Opera House. They had all of their existing databases and, and user interfaces, you could suggest, were all kept the same so that all of the facility managers would still interface directly with those individual pieces of the puzzle. And the new software system or the, the, the building management system that he created um, with the subcontractor sat over the top and sucked the data out. So therefore, the process of learning for the, the existing staff wasn't that excessive because the user interface stayed the same. Now, one of the things I am one of the things that's really important to note here in Australia, uh, we have a BIM skills framework, and the idea will be is that depending upon your role in an organisation that's part of delivering a project, your level of skill and knowledge varies, and there's a whole series of 135 skills that people have to learn. With these new digital processes, with all of this data and applications that the Turner and Townsend have built and are currently using to assist. Um, in decision making and, and and providing services to clients, have you found that your project managers um, now have uh, had to you know adapt and have new skills? Um, are they having new responsibilities, new accountability? Uh, you know what what sort of areas of change has occurred um, within your business for your project managers now that you have all this new information to draw upon? Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's been a real impact. Um, I'd say that a challenge that the industry has at the moment is there's a, um, there's almost like a, a, a large scale relay race being had. So if I take it back to when a lot of this stuff was, was being took off the ground, there was basically being, it was basically being led by the designers and, yes. and engineers. Uh, contractors came just after that and very quickly realized that they could use this technology to, 
massively benefit, manage risk, uh, de-risk projects, understand how to hedge risk and, and, and do all sorts of sorts of cool stuff. So in terms of uh, in terms of the skill sets uh, and and how they're going to interact, the the next thing beyond hedging risk and understanding how to support clients was how to start being more proactive. Um, so you know I think in, it, there's a there's a saying that I've got which is the uh, the the old orange crayon uh, phenomenon, which was if you rewind the clocks back like ten years, um, if an architect or an engineer handed over a, a drawing which was uh, pretty rubbish looking, um, you know. Something which had, uh, that obviously rushed, something which had, was incomplete, something which was of low quality. You know, the project manager would generally throw that back across the table and tell them to, to keep going. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, we're living in a world now where I think a lot of project managers don't actually understand how to access and interface with the information. Yeah. So we see a lot of models which are being delivered, um, getting signed off, um, being submitted at the end of key stages and then sometimes at the end of projects, which are just incomplete. Uh, and then they're just not right. Um, so for us, it's actually just making the uh, project managers, cost managers, and everyone who has to engage and approve information, making sure that they are able to actually check this information, yeah. uh, making sure that they're able to actually sign it off and view it, and uh, ultimately just make sure that they actually know what good looks like. Yeah. I think those are the key points, really. Um, so once you're in a situation where they can actually start proactively engaging with these things, we can start minimizing things like uh, r- retrospective value engineering processes. You know, cost managers are able to engage with information more readily, to start actually managing data, to start pulling quantities and applying methods of measurement to models. Uh, and ultimately, it just makes things slightly more proactive so that you're not getting to the end of a key stage and uh, reviewing a lot of information and working out what needs to change. Now, I think a key point that you make there is bringing the cost managers in earlier. Now, I think sometimes um, when people ask about BIM costing more or less in terms of consultant fees, I think that that's the one area that really needs to be addressed and with regards to cost managers because essentially um, I know here in Australia with the projects that, that I've got had experience working on that uh, essentially the, the quantity surveyor or the cost consultant is brought in at certain stages to produce, you know, one or, you know, they might produce throughout the design phase two or three estimates depending upon the scale of the project. Now their role would then change um, throughout the project where if, if they're brought in and having to provide more services, their fee would have to inevitably go up because they're providing more service. But then what you're saying is is it's almost similar to the McLeamy curve in the sense that if there is investment made um, in their fee at an earlier stage, then they're saving the project time and money in the sense of having to do value management when you've gone too far down down the track. Um, so there's a there's, there's something which we often um, talk through about you know when key decisions are made. Um, so the, the the density of how many decisions have to be made, uh, the, the more value. Uh, sorry, the earlier those decisions are made, the more value they generally have. Yes. So if we can have, for instance, at the, at the, from the get-go, if we understand what project managers and cost managers need long-term to be able to interface with the information, we can actually get that actually built into the project DNA. Yeah. So it's no good a cost manager coming in and starting to look at architectural models that might have been built to, I don't know, produce drawings um, when... You know, for the same amount of effort, that cost manager could be brought in right at the start of a project, help explain to the design team um, 
what information they need because um, they don't need everything. Uh, but it could be like a cost breakdown structure built into the model. Yeah. Are they using Uniclass or Omniclass? Uh, you know, what, what do they actually have to hang off? Um, and if they can engage in that process more proactively, we can build into the requirements and the, the execution plans um, some some real knowledge and information so that as people do set models up, um, it's easier for them to use long term. Yes. So I think, you know, it's it's not necessarily always going to be a case of uh, more effort uh, if it's earlier. Uh, I think there's, a, there's something big to be said for getting everyone around the table at the start of a project and almost doing a dry run. It just goes back to people understanding what other, other people's information needs are yes. and how you can produce information that adds value to the whole project. Yeah, um, so, so something which we trialed, we, there's something called Blue Projects, which we tried uh, trialed a while ago and it's quite successful, is basically taking the, the whole team at the start of a project, getting them in, in a room together, and that includes, you know, where possible, people like the FM provider and the client, and actually just workshopping the, the information flow and, and explaining to people, you know, what data sets are important to us at key stages, you know, showing people how we apply a method of measurement over the top of the model, because it's essentially using the models of framework, uh, how we link rates up to these things, how we use, uh, use links between rate libraries and, uh, and data within the models. So I think for me, it's, it's all about making sure that there's an early engagement, making sure that there's confidence in the models that are being produced, uh, and making sure that there's the right metadata within those models to, to basically help the, the cost managers and project managers do the job better. I think that's the key thing for all this. I think that the last couple of responses you've had have sent my mind blurring into a whole myriad of different questions for you, which is exciting. But one of the other things that you did talk about in comment previous to the last one was in regards to project managers and cost managers having a good understanding of the information that they're receiving. Now, obviously, it's reasonably easy uh, for people within that role to be able to identify and see a uh, physical asset because depending upon their skill and capability, they'll be able to traditionally read a set of drawings and then go on site and go, yes, I can see the physical asset. Now, uh, are you suggesting that a project manager would make a, a, a great information manager in terms of the, the, the terminology under ISO 19650? Or do you think that they're, you know, or do you think that their expertise is, you know, they just have to have a general understanding to start with? I think there's a, there's, there's other considerations here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think procurement route and the scale of the project sometimes are going to be, um, you know, key factors in making the decision of who is the information manager. Yep. Um, uh, there's pros and cons to, to the different roles. So if, if you want to have an independent organization uh, carry out that role. It's the the overhead of appointing someone, um, and the the overhead of having a, I guess a, a technical specialist or an external party or an independent party come in and deliver that. If the project's got enough scale to to do that, then that's great. Sometimes the uh, the, the some people from the design team might pick up that role. There there are pros and cons to that as well. Um, so re- regardless of how well you set out the standards, people have always got their own methodology and work and practice. Yeah. Um, and depending on your procurement route, the architect's not necessarily going to be a consistent uh, party throughout the project. So if you, you know so, some of the activities that expect of an information manager would be things like uh, monitoring quality, making sure information is delivered on time. You can't really do that if you're one of the, the, the key people who are producing that information yourself. You, you also may only be up there up until construction stage or pre-construction management stage, or or sometimes the, the architect might stay on for the whole project, in which case it's fine. 
One of the, the reasons why we see it being quite successful when it's part of an integrated function within project management is that the, the PM is usually there from uh, inception through to completion, uh, and their role is essentially to, to manage and maintain the people and the project processes. I very much see an information manager or, you know, historically what you might term a BIM manager falling in line with that. So the, the detailed design program uh, becomes the master information delivery plan, and those two things are back-to-back. The design responsibilities matrix and a model production and delivery table, those things are back-to-back too. Yeah. Uh, they all need to be fully aligned, uh, contractually contractually executed, and somebody needs to verify um, who's delivering what and what the handover period looks like. So I, I generally think it's the, the project manager's responsibility to ensure that whatever was supposed to be delivered at the end of each key milestone has been delivered to the right level of quality uh, and has been communicated properly to the client. From a personal perspective, I, I see that as being a, a match made in heaven. Yes. I think the challenge with that is maturity and skills. So it's not, it's not without the realms of possibility that project managers have these skills. But historically, designers tend to be the people who look at it more closely and contractors tend to control this process too. So I, I, I see in the future the role of the information manager being a collaborative one. I'm looking forward to a day where a lot of these processes are commoditized anyway and they just become part of the system that, that, that is used to deliver that. But for the time being, I can see there's a huge benefit in project management delivering that function um, or, or an independent part because they essentially are going to do what's right for the project and what's right for the client. And they don't have any agenda with regards to you know how information is managed, verified, handed over. Um, so I can see that being a huge, uh, a huge benefit for the time being. That's an interesting uh, journey that project manager is going to have, or albeit uh, they might have to uh, engage in experts to uh, engage experts internally into their organisation to provide that role, similar to uh, how you may have different subject matters on different, you know, different different sectors and stuff like that. You might have someone that's actually an expertise has expertise in information management. We've been talking purely, I guess, from the side of project managers and cost planners from. As the consulting side, what would be your thoughts on client project managers? And this is the internal project managers. My views are is that they're going to need the same level of expertise to know what they're getting as well rather than relying on uh, yeah. independent parties, but also client side project managers that are now the essentially the face of an organisation that's procuring the asset. They're going to need to upskill pretty quickly as well. Yeah, sure thing. You know, a lot of the projects that I've engaged with, at the very start of the project, there's, there's something which which I always sort of do mandatory, uh, which is a, we call it status report. Um, so it sounds very boring. Uh, essentially, that that whole process is working out what the skills and maturity are of the team, because because of the way the industry is at the minute, there's pockets of excellence, there's fluctuation in maturity between different sectors. Some clients have to ramp up teams quite quickly. There's quite a lot of churn because of the, the way the market is at the moment. Uh, so it's really important for us to understand, you know, exactly who can do what um, and what their capability is. Um, as part of that process, uh, we spent quite a lot of time mapping out what the end vision is going to look like. Uh, we, we, we capture in quite a lot of detail what the current situation is. And this covers, you know, skills, people, roles, uh, data, um, technology and processes that are implemented. Once you've got that end state and as is um, captured, it gives you the, the ability to actually work a roadmap out. And, and a lot of the time we spend uh, managing and governing how a project's being delivered. But a lot of the time we actually spend training and upskilling different parts of the team. I mean, we've got a project in the northwest of England where 
we actually end up seconding one of our guys into the client organization for about six months. Uh, he essentially trained up their asset management team, their estate team, and the, uh, the, the interface and project manager. So there's seven client project managers across seven different projects in the program. And, and by the end of that six month period, you know, they, they weren't experts, um, but they are already experts in their own field and they have enough information and awareness to know what good likes good looks like, uh, understand what information they should be expecting, interface with models, interface with information management tools, uh, you name it, look at the dashboards and understand what it really means for how the project needs to be managed. So I actually think it's something which everyone should engage with. Uh, I don't think there's anyone that I've come across uh, on a project so far who should not be aware of, of what's going on and to understand the impact of, of uh, some of these processes because you know, it's, it's it's easy for people to sometimes put it in a little bin box and uh, kind of you know treat it as a bolt on to the to the project or the process, and, and that's absolutely the worst thing you can possibly do. It should just become part of your you know habit or your, your way of delivery rather than a, a separate work stream or something that the specialists get in a room and do. Um, one of the big risks I've seen in the past actually is you you know you'll have a bin meeting or a bin work group meeting or a coordination meeting, whatever you want to call it. And you've got a lot of technologists who understand, <laughs> you know, how, how to do the right thing for the technology. It's not necessarily the right thing for the project. Um, sometimes there's commercial decisions above their heads that don't understand. And uh, putting it frankly, quite often uh, we sort of write checks we can't cash essentially. So we we'll make a lot of decisions and then uh, people will go away and say, and again, you know, he has 10 reasons why those decisions are, not, are, are right for technology but wrong for the project. And you end up having Groundhog Day and, you know, people people actually don't really progress. Uh, and that's when you end up with a project where the BIM meeting happens once a month and everyone gets together in a room and just complains about the fact it's still not working. So I've seen that happen in the past and it's just so important that everyone becomes educated. It's a BIM for BIM's sake. And I know that there were times many years ago when we had scenarios where we were doing coordination meetings and the number one rule I had was is that None of the tech people come into the room. It's actually the designers because they're the ones that make the decisions. And and yeah. Yeah. and 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 I think the biggest challenge that I think is is it's the analog people that really need to actually the ones that are the decision makers need to start to learn to embrace these processes because it's actually going to benefit them. It's actually going to be easier. And I know that the challenge is with all change management is that. It's all about understanding the benefits at the start, and and not and not just going how much they're going to have to learn or how much harder their job's going to be because of these new these new things they're going to have to learn, which is quite challenging. But you know, you you talked about um, just before about you know six months training program to get a client up to speed, you know, fully fully in, embedded within their organisation. Um, do you want to have a do you want to talk to us about the sort of new environments that you've been creating and, and platforms um, that you've set up to, to foster, you know, collaboration and, and enable that to occur? You know, the, the, the main thing is people, you know, 70% people, 20% mm-hmm. process and tech, technology is probably a good way to, to, to sort of um, to, to map these things out. So I'll start with the people before yeah. I talk about the tech. Um, one of, this is a huge generalization and it might be quite controversial, um, but like what we that. tend to find is, <laughs> so we, we, you'll, you'll find that, um, definitely a few years ago, less so much now. Um, the, it's not necessarily an age thing. Um, but what you'll, what, what'll happen is you'll have a, an architect who really understands the BIM process. Uh, you know, they might be younger. 
Uh, and then you'll have a, an architect who really understands how to manage and lead a team. And, you know, they've, they've got those battle scars from the past. They understand what certain things mean and how to really deliver a successful project. You know, in a, in a BIM environment, uh, the, the, the more experienced architects might no longer be qualified to manage that project. Um, so there was kind of like a, a, a period where there was a wave of people who essentially didn't have the experience needed uh, to deliver, but they were the only people who really understood BIM. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of companies, us included, who, who've had different responses to this. And one of the things that we did was to essentially pair up uh, a more experienced person with a more tech savvy person. And those two become like a partnership so they can learn from each other. Uh, and you, you know, you're trying to move a, a business away from a fixed mindset of, I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for 50 years or whatever and try and move them away from a fixed mindset of, I know what I'm doing. I'm the tech guy. Uh, in trying to move it towards a, a growth mindset where people are saying, well, what can I learn from the, the, the technology? Um, and what can I learn from this guy's experience? And, um, you know, we, we tend to find that that's a good way of trying to accelerate people's learning and understanding. Uh, there is an overhead to that, but it's, it's, it's much more successful than, than anything else that we've, uh, that we've really trialed. Uh, on, a, on a project system basis, I mean, you know, we, not just us, you, but you can, you can see people are moving further and further away from traditional reporting and different waterfall programs and layers of uh, conversation, which, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit like Chinese whisper sometimes. There's a problem that happens on a project that gets reported up, um, that gets aggregated with 50 other problems that gets reported up too. Uh, and essentially, the person at the top finds out about a month later um, what happened last month, uh, and, and it's either already been resolved or it's no longer an issue or it's too late to fix, you know. So the the, the approach that we take now is almost, um, you almost kind of, kind of like have three strands. Um, so you might have uh, an environment. I'm going to talk about this in program terms because it's it, it's easier to explain. Um, so, you, so you might have an environment or a platform for collaboration or a CDE. Yep. Uh, somewhere where everybody's uh, managing workflows, reporting, uh, and capturing information, you're creating that audit trail. Um, you know, you, you'll have a you'll have a client at program level um, who has overall responsibility for this. Uh, they'll look down on on on, the, on these projects. You then have individual project managers, and then you have your supply chain underneath each of those. Um, so the so the first, I guess, the first container, I guess, is this uh, this common data environment. The second thread that we run up alongside that is um, usually some sort of BI software. So, you know, like a Tableau or a Power BI, uh, other, uh, other softwares are available. Uh, but essentially, you, you know, the idea is uh, that you can, you, can, you can mandate standards that have a, a level of flexibility that allows people to innovate, but a level of consistency that means that you're going to get the same outputs at, at, at key stages. Uh, you then lead and govern the process across the supply chain. You get them trained up right. You get them working together right. You get the project manager understanding the information that's coming up to them. That allows you to escalate reporting much more efficiently. Um, so if, you, if you're running a, a, a BI dashboard alongside that, um, you can start doing some pretty cool things like pulling data out of models, pulling data out of the back end of the common data environment, um, you know, forecasting your information delivery plan, quality checks, uh, levels of tolerances for clashes, risk profiles, that can all be forecast in a, in a, in a, in a BI dashboard. And you can start pulling the data from the models. And then instead of asking people questions, you can start doing things 
like you know, there's a, there's an app that we use called Soft Tools, which will basically um, take somebody's deliverables for that month and it'll notify them and they can fill in that form. It'll get approved and it'll go straight into a database, which gets rolled up into a dashboard. Uh, and this actually gives the project managers kind of like an aerial view of everything that's going on based on actual objective data, not just discussions and meetings. Uh, and you can roll this data up at a higher level so that the, the, the client might have some specific KPIs that they, they might want to know about. So as soon as something's uh, complete or as soon as something's been submitted, the idea is that, that you know, that becomes a, a, a tick in the box which gets rolled up so that the project managers or the client can understand the overall progress and effort that the project's actually made. Uh, and you can do some really cool stuff like start league tabling uh, performance, start league tabling uh, quality checks, start league tabling uh, consistency and uh, completion of data. Uh, and you can start getting like a competitive culture uh, in the project. Uh, the, the third strand that we use um, uh, could be a, a system um, such as CAMS, which is essentially a system that you can start managing risk processes in. I talk a lot about risk but it's a primary function of cost and project managers. Yes. Uh, you can start, yes. you know, you can start running something alongside that, which helps the, the team really achieve that game plan that you set out at the start. And with these three systems in place, it helps you, you know, see and understand what's going on. Uh, it gives you some real insight into how the team's performing. Uh, and then you can feed that back down into the standards and processes so that you end up with a, you know, with a, with an actual relay system of continuous improvement. Uh, and, and that's really cool for me. We've started to see that on some huge programs that we're running. Uh, and, you know, the first few projects are great. And by the time you're into projects six, seven and eight, uh, you're running a really slick process. The clients know what they're looking at. And everybody's, you know, really on top of any issues that, that might arise because, you know, you get some real curveballs on these projects. And it just enables you to deal with those and uh, spend more time talking to each other, resolving issues and focusing on what the client outcomes are rather than just filming their Word documents in minutes, you know. Yeah, well, it's 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 an interesting approach. So essentially, you've got almost like an, a, it's kind of a real time for real time reporting, but it's it's close to as it as it is in terms of the you know how how frequently the data is is transferred to the dashboards. You know, it, as much as it can be as real time as possible. But I think that's a really important point that you made when you started at the start, and I think that is the biggest challenge that we face within industry today. It's the fact that there's the, the the younger generation that have the ability to learn new processes and and uh, and technology, but they actually just don't have the expertise in actually knowing or understanding the process of actually managing a project, or even from the architectural perspective, actually how to, how a building goes together, and then tying that all together with all of, with all of those things. Now, for you, that's actually um now you know that's real life day-to-day management processes how your organization works and the sad thing is is that sometimes it can be a bit of a futurist type discussion because we'll talk about um we've just talked about how you work and how you work is actually probably the future for the majority of the listeners we're going to take the listeners to the future of the future for them <laughs> and what do you what do you see in being the next big change in industry you know and and the way project management works now obviously the the processes you've talked about in that last in that last response essentially to me is going to be the future for people uh, within industry for even the short to medium term you know I know there's big big hopes and dreams with regards to digital twins and and uh, you know, yeah. um, industry. What is it? Three point Apart from the stuff you've talked about, which I think 
for a lot of organisations is a big change to them. What do you think would be the next big change in your mind and, and in the way in which people do work and, and how they work together? You, you know, for me, I think there's two, there's two ways of looking at this. There's, um, there's the sustainable innovations that, that are happening every day uh, and then there's disruptive innovations which, are, uh, which happen at, at key points in time uh, and, and that tends to be when there's enough sustainable innovation that we kind of get bored with what we're doing and decide to rethink things. Yeah. Um, there's a big, there's a big uh, difference between digitization and digitalization. Um, that's, I think that's a key lesson learned for me over the last few years. Is that you know we can digitize processes that we already do, and that's great. Uh, the issue that you sometimes have there is you, you, you're kind of left with uh, what I would call process sediment, which is you know things that you do that have built up over time, and you're not really sure why you do them. And every so often you need to have a bit of a stop and a bit of a rethink. Um, and then there's completely rethinking whether or not that process is even necessary and, and you know, what the component parts of it and what, what it's trying to do. Um, so, you know, in terms of sustainable stuff, the ongoing stuff, the big thing for me is cloud and process and power. So everything that I've just talked about there wouldn't really be feasible a few years ago. So the, so the, the, the processes that I just talked about there are things that we're delivering now on some major programs. Uh, there's a lot of projects which we're not delivering that on because they started a few years back and this stuff wasn't quite as feasible. So, you know, the ability to collaborate, you know, so some of the projects I see, we've got teams working together across all sorts of corners of the world. Uh, and that's only possible because of the advancements of the cloud. Uh, and that's also only possible because the scale of the information that's being shared can be processed by computers in a, in a, in a meaningful and, a, and, and useful way. Mm. Um, I think, uh, you know, the next big thing in terms of, uh, in terms of people is the, the expectations of the people who are coming into our industry now. So I, I do I do some work with uh, schools, um, and uh, it's so cool to 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 speak to the the kids and understand what their ideas and thinking uh, are. And there's an anecdote which I've probably told most of the people that I do know. So forgive us, but a few years back we did a process where we, we went out to all the schools in the northeast. Uh, no, all of them. We went to several schools in the northeast and give them a bit of an overview of what, you know, certain companies in the Northeast looks like, you know, particularly around construction. And at the end of the, the, the course and the exercise, they all had a, a basic learning of a, a lot of different things. Uh, I, I used some of the, the collateral that I developed as a teacher a few years back um, when I taught some kids about design. Um, what was interesting for me is the, the, the five or six kids that at the end come for a mock interview with us, and some of them came as work experience, was so varied in terms of what they expected out of the world. Uh, they just totally blew my mind. So there's there one particular kid from Sunderland, um, which is a city up here in the northeast of England. He, he, he came a year early, so he, he finished his GCSE, his, his school qualifications, about a year early, which I, I found fascinating. Uh, and he did this by crowdsourcing his education on the cloud, uh, which blew my mind because when I was 16 years old, I was playing football behind a supermarket or something like that. So he, he came into the uh, office and said, well, uh, I, I like technology. You know, my question was like, why do you want to come to Turner and Townsend? And, you know, why are you interested in technology? And he said, I like technology because I'm lazy. Um, and, and I thought that was cool because that's why I like technology. Um, he, uh, he, he basically, what he, what he did was, uh, he, he loves physics and he loves math. Yeah. Uh, hates history, hates geography, not interested in English. All right. Um, so what he did was he, he, he built, uh, he built a village on Minecraft, um, which, which was essentially a place for people who love math and physics to go to. And they would all share their work and their information. Uh, and actually there was other kids who had other interests and they all started building villages too. 
he had 2,000 people on his Minecraft server. Um, those were the numbers he reported into me, so I can't verify that. He arranged had about 2,000 people on his Minecraft server from Europe, um, largely. And what they were doing was they were all uh, learning from each other's uh, education and syllabus. Uh, in the villages um, where they where they were doing subjects that they liked, so he actually got to learn things like what a kid learns about physics in France and stuff like that. And, uh, and likewise, he crowdsourced his uh, rightly or wrongly crowdsourced all of the stuff that he wasn't interested in by visiting villages where kids would just love to talk about you know English and, and history and, and, and whatever else. Uh, so, he, so he actually completely CCSE the year early, and I thought that was just fascinating. And, you know, the, the, the expectations that the kids, you know, Generation Alpha, as you should probably call them, they're about nine years old, the oldest of them now, what they're going to expect out of our industry when some of these things I'm about to talk about actually hits the market, it's just going to be fascinating, um, and, and, and I'd love to be around and, and watch how, how, that, uh, how that happens. So in the UK specifically, I think what's coming out on top of this is, is going to be the rollout of 5G. Um, so, you know, I'm still talking about things that are supporting what we're doing here. 5G is going to enable us to do some of these big collaborative processes wherever we are. We might struggle a bit at the moment. You know, I mean, we're Skyping from uh, Australia to the UK right now. So that's, that's pretty impressive if you if you rewind the clock back five or ten years. Five or ten years from now, kids are going to be uh, in construction and they're going to be doing all sorts of stuff on, on mobile devices and everything. You know, they might not even be bothered with laptops by then. To talk about some of the big trends, you know, I, I think... I think what's going to hit us next is not AI uh, or AGI as people term it. You know, they talk about artificial general intelligence and, you know, the ability for unsupervised learning and, you know, communication with machines and stuff. I think before that, uh, there's a recognition that machine learning, you know, practical, scalable, valuable, um, basic machine learning is going to play a big role. So, you know, if you look at the UK, some of the UK initiatives, we've got one of the initiatives, which is, you know, part of the data for the public good report, the, the national infrastructure, um, digital twin. Um, you know, if you, if, if you actually take a step back and think what a digital twin means on a national level, um, we're going to start thinking about what sort of data a component has, what sort of data an asset has, how that rolls up into, you know, linear infrastructure, critical infrastructure, things like university campuses, city models. Uh, and, and ultimately a, a, a national model. I think it would be absolutely crazy for us to think that a person could understand what to do with all that information. And I think the trying to scale some insight and intelligence at that level is going to is going to basically force us to turn machine learning from a nice to have to a to an absolutely must need. I think you know that hand in hand with the concept of digital twin. Um, I, I think is uh, is probably the next big thing, and it's creating that feedback loop. Which helps us understand, you know, how infrastructure is performing and how we can, you know, manage and reduce energy consumption and improve sustainability and focus on, you know, reducing our carbon footprint. Uh, I had a really good meeting yesterday with a, with a healthcare client who, you know, they're using data and analytics to understand their patient lifespan. Uh, they're using it to understand how they move from, um, from, uh, different, uh, practices, different clinics, different hospitals. And they're using that to basically inform their, you know, their asset rollout for the next four or five years based on actual data rather than a business plan someone's pulled together uh, in a room somewhere. So, so you know, it's that feedback we've been understanding how things are operating that I think is going to be the uh, the next big thing in our sector. Um, I do have opinions on things like uh, blockchain and you know, moving to edge computing from cloud and stuff like that. But to be honest, I think that's my area of focus at the minute. How do we focus on productivity, you know, sustainability and uh, 
uh, rethinking processes now that we've got, you know, cloud computing processing and, 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 and real access to information online. Now, I think you might have uh, answered my, my final question for you in all of that because um, the, the, but, but I should actually go back to the start of your comment and, and actually admit to knowing a number of people that also comment about their love of technology and why they love technology and why they came up with creative ideas of how they can use technology to do things better uh, because they were lazy as well. But uh, they uh, <laughs> definitely didn't have, have the innovation that the other young fella did have. And I guess the question I, I should put forward to you is whether or not you actually put him on. <laughs> <laughs> I've got his name, yeah. yeah. So that, that, that was, uh, it, was three, it was three years ago that and he was about to go to university. Uh, so he's uh, he, we we had that chat at the time. We had that chat at the time. He wanted to go to university and go down a slightly different route. Uh, but yeah, I, I I I know where he is and I know his name. So I'll hundred percent I'll be uh, I'll be catching up with that guy again because he blew my socks off basically. Yeah. The problem will be is that I've seen. I think it's a Hollywood movie where uh, by a person may look like they're sitting at the desk for 37 and a half hours a week, 40 hours a week doing their job, but they're actually uh, using the internet to outsource the work that they're supposed to be doing to other people. So you probably bring him on board and he'll be uh, doing a similar thing for you. But um, Yeah, creating an entire shell economy around, around, around the team. Yeah. He, he, he sits there and he plays Minecraft all day and other, and other people are doing the job for you. But, um, George, hey, it's been a great delivered. pleasure. If the project's getting delivered, we're all right. <laughs> it doesn't matter how it's done as long as it's done properly. Now, it's been a pleasure, George, talking to you, mate. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today and, and discuss on the topic of modern project management. I think, in all honesty, it's going to be a, a mind bender for a lot of the project managers out there and even our client-facing project managers in terms of where they need to head moving into the future. And I hope that they kind of um, take the time to listen to this and, and, and then start making the steps in a forward direction to help making their, making their role a lot easier and not being scared by it. But I have one yeah, final cool. question yeah. for you. And, and this is where I was joking about the fact that you probably already answered this, but it's the one question I ask all of my guests Mate, what does BIM mean to you? What does BIM mean to me? Uh, I think that's a good one, that. Uh, um, it's no longer in my job title uh, officially, but I'm still ahead of BIM. You know, I mean, I, I came into the industry in 2011. Um, I was very lucky. You know, it used to be a hobby of mine, and the, the government over here mandated my hobby the year I graduated, which was really good. Um, for me, it's a, it's a Trojan horse uh, behind change. So I think it's something which everyone starts thinking about and then realizes that, uh, a lot of what they do really needs a bit of a rethink. Uh, and there's, there's, there's some real opportunities to get the back of house in line and make some key decisions. I think, you know, BIM for me is that Trojan horse, um, which helps people digitalize what they're doing. Uh, I think, you know, the long term, it's, it's bringing together and blurring the lines between the different phases of the, of the asset life cycle. Uh, and, and actually some of the standards and some of the, the communities that have been developed around this i think it's been phenomenal so we've got like whole social media you know communities which are helping us as an industry start to work together uh, and to become more aligned i think with a new iso standard coming out we're seeing certainly an ability for us and, and my team to start delivering projects consistently across the world uh which you know as as, as the world becomes a smaller place can only, can only be a really good thing so i think for me you know it's, it's all about better information management it's all about actually taking a good hard look in the mirror and working out what you do and, and why. And then actually it's given clients and uh, 
contractors and engineers and, and architects and everybody else who comes into this party a, a real opportunity to make some key decisions about how they should work in the future and you know what sort of outputs they're looking for and how their business model operates so i think you know BIM's a thread that runs through everything for me, uh, and, I, and I think it's been a real good catalyst to try and bring bring us all together as uh, professionals. It's so it's about um, dragging our productivity of the construction industry up above farming, I think, in the end. But uh, oh yeah, thanks again, George, for your time, mate. For more information on George, please head over to our website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. Digital transition.